Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 12, Revolution's Aftermath. In this episode, we shall learn about how chemistry changed with Antoine Lavoisier's chemical revolution. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. By 1790, Lavoisier had begun converting chemists to his new vision of chemistry, removing phlogiston, adding oxygen, and showing that water is a compound, not an element. Lavoisier's textbook was translated into German in 1792. Among the adherents was Torbern Bergman of Sweden, who helped Scheele get his start as a chemist. Another was Martin Klaproth of Germany, who discovered the previous year the elements uranium and zirconium. German natural philosophers were generally a stalwart crew, favoring phlogiston for patriotic reasons, because phlogiston was invented by Stahl, a German. But now, with the Germans understanding this new scheme, phlogiston's strength crumbled fast. In Britain, Joseph Black wasn't sure about this newfangled oxygen and water thing, but lectured about the new chemistry till 1790 and his successor, Thomas Hope, taught it to medical students as well. There were, though, some who rejected Lavoisier's idea till the end of their lives, including Henry Cavendish and Joseph Priestley. Surprisingly, James Hutton, the founder of modern geology, was also opposed. There was not only a chemical revolution going on, but political ones as well. Only a few years before, the British-American colony's War of Independence with Great Britain was won, in large measure through support by France. Antoine Lavoisier even took part in this tangentially. He became a régisseur, or commissioner, in the French Royal Gunpowder and Saltpeter Administration in 1775, and set up an advanced laboratory at the Paris Arsenal. France thus became the hub of gunpowder research, where he worked to improve reliability of the material. He reached higher purities of the ingredients and created a better method of making gunpowder granules. Much of France's gunpowder was sold to the American revolutionaries, giving them a slight tactical advantage. But Lavoisier was unimpressed with Benjamin Franklin's scientific mind when Franklin lived in Paris. At that time, Franklin was probably the most famous American in the world. A detailed article by Seymour Mauskopf in a 1995 issue of Revue d'Histoire des Sciences lays out what Lavoisier did. Much later in this series, we shall see another American connection to Lavoisier's gunpowder research. But the second political revolution was utterly disastrous for Antoine Lavoisier. Recall from the last episode that Lavoisier was a member of a private organization that collected tobacco taxes for the French king. So, despite avoiding French politics, Lavoisier was still caught up in the French Revolution. He was branded as a royalist, being a contractor by the royal government, and was arrested on November 24, 1793. During Robespierre's reign of terror the following year, He was named officially as a traitor to the revolution and convicted on May 8th. 
That afternoon, he was hauled in front of a public gathering and guillotined. The great French mathematician Joseph Lagrange mourned this horrendous act with the famous quote, It took them only a moment to sever that head, and a hundred years perhaps will not suffice to produce another like it. In late 1795, the French government officially apologized to his widow, Marie-Anne Lavoisier, and returned his property to her in a too-little-too-late gesture. You can still see much of Lavoisier's laboratory equipment in the Musée des Arts et Métiers in Paris, including his desk, huge balances, and glass globes for collecting and measuring gases. Marie-Anne began a romance with Benjamin Thompson, also called Count Rumford, and they married in 1804. But the relationship proved difficult, and they separated soon after marriage. She fiercely preserved and promoted the legacy of her murdered husband, Antoine. Sadly, it wasn't until the 100th anniversary of the French Revolution that the French government had a statue made to commemorate Lavoisier. It was soon discovered that the artist used the secretary of the Academy of Sciences, Nicolas de Condorcet, in the 1790s as the model for the face instead of Lavoisier himself. There was no money available to fix the statue, and apparently the French argued that with wigs and such back in 1790 or so, all men looked alike, so whatever. During World War II, the statue was removed and melted down for scrap and never remade. There is no public statue to this day in honor of Lavoisier. Here is yet another connection to the new country of America. Marie-Anne Lavoisier's second husband, Benjamin Thompson, was born in Massachusetts, but was a loyalist to King George III. It turns out that he, too, was involved with research for the British side on gunpowder. After the British surrender in 1783, he fled to Britain, leaving behind a wife and children, and received a knighthood from the king, getting dubbed Count Rumford, withstanding as a scientist based on his gunpowder studies. He continued the legacy of Joseph Black, experimenting on heat and discovering that heat and motion were equivalent, as Lomonosov suggested in the mid-18th century, contributing to the new field of thermodynamics. What about Joseph Priestley, the Unitarian minister who discovered a variety of gases? Having been rejected by the Anglican authorities to become Captain Cook's science advisor on the famous voyage to the South Seas, he was hired by the Earl of Shelburne as a librarian, tutor for the Earl's children, and intellectual mentor, and was given money to set up his own laboratory. But Priestley was a Unitarian in an Anglican country, which was bad enough, made worse by Priestley's Republican support for America, pressuring him to resign his post for the Earl in 1780 and return to being a minister. He then was publicly supporting the French Revolution, which caused rioters to burn his congregation and home in 1791. He and family fled to London, where his American contacts encouraged him to emigrate. So he sailed to the United States in 1794, but rejected a teaching position in Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania. Rather, he built a home with built-in laboratory in Northumberland, in quiet, remote northeastern Pennsylvania, where he died in 1804. President Thomas Jefferson eulogized Priestley as one of the few lives precious to mankind. You can visit Priestley's home and laboratory to this day, now known as the Joseph Priestley House. In 1876, a group of American chemists met at the house and came up with the idea for an organization of chemists, now called the American Chemical Society, 
the largest scientific society in the world, which I mentioned in episode one. The contrast between Lavoisier, a political conservative but scientific radical, and Priestley, a religious radical but chemical conservative, is fascinating. Lavoisier's new chemical language swept the scientific world. One of the more interesting bits of evidence of that change is from the chemist Elizabeth Fulham's book, An Essay on Combustion with a View to a New Art of Dyeing and Painting, published in 1794. Not much is known of her background except her book, and that her husband, a doctor, was of Irish birth and studied under Joseph Black at the University of Edinburgh. We know that she started her research around the year 1780. In the preface of her book, she wrote, I have adopted the French nomenclature, as the terms of it are so framed as to prevent circumlocution, assist the memory by pointing out the combination and state of the elements existing in each compound as far as they are known. Advantages to be found in no other nomenclature. However, the English reader must regret that the French chemists have not preferred the terms air and ammonia to the less harmonious sounds gas and ammoniac. I took the liberty of writing the latter ammonia. Within five years of Lavoisier's textbook, the nomenclature, even in English, has changed to his style. But also, interestingly, the publisher chose for some reason the now antiquated C-H-Y spelling for chemist. As to the topics in her book, she discusses new methods of how to reduce metal salts to metals themselves in a variety of reducing agents, including at room temperature, instead of smelting ores in high heat. She discussed the idea of catalysis, that a substance takes part in a reaction but isn't used up, particularly in reactions occurring with water. And even more so, she impregnated light-sensitive silver salts, like the silver nitrate we heard about in the Renaissance, in cloth to make interesting patterns. This is a direct precursor to photography, which wasn't invented for another generation. In her introduction, she vents a bit of spleen at misogyny in her culture. It may appear presuming to some that I should engage in pursuits of this nature, but averse from indolence, and having much leisure, my mind led me to this mode of amusement which I found entertaining, and will I hope be thought inoffensive by the liberal and the learned. But censure is perhaps inevitable, for some are so ignorant that they grow sullen and silent, and are chilled with the horror at the sight of anything that bears the semblance of learning in whatever shape it may appear. And should the specter appear in the shape of woman, the pangs which they suffer are truly dismal. Now that chemistry has a modern language, what is first on the agenda for discussion? Let's examine the controversy between Proust and Berthollet. Louis Proust, a Frenchman, was a professor of chemistry in Vergara, Spain. He worked in metallurgy and chemical analysis and found two different iron sulfates with different colors and only those two versions. Each had a particular percentage by weight of iron. Any time he found some iron sulfate with a composition between the two, it turned out to be a separable mixture of the two iron sulfates. Likewise, he found that copper, lead, nickel, cobalt, and antimony also had two versions of sulfates. Or take copper carbonate. 
No matter where you found it or how you made it, it always was one part carbon, four parts oxygen, and 5.3 parts copper. With these data in hand, he publicized his law of definite proportions. That is, every chemical has a fixed composition by weight that does not change. In sum, you can write a definite formula for that substance. On the other hand, in 1799 came a former collaborator of none other than Lavoisier, named Claude Berthollet, who said more or less the opposite that compounds can vary some in their composition and, at best, there is an approximate formula for that compound. Berthollet's background was as scientific advisor to Napoleon in Egypt in 1798 to 1799. Egypt is renowned for its salts, and there Berthollet found a salt lake with a bottom of limestone, but a crystallizing sodium carbonate edge of the lake's water. Clearly, sodium carbonate was precipitating out by limestone reacting with salt water, except that this was the reverse of the typical reaction of limestone precipitated by sodium carbonate. Berthollet pondered if other reactions could go backwards too. Upon return to France, Berthollet reacted all sorts of alkalis to see if they were reversible. And he found, yes, they were, depending on how the concentrations of reactants and products and other conditions varied. We call this an early form of the law of mass action, which we will talk about much later in the 19th century. Then he did chemical analyses, but his techniques were poor, giving him a variety of compositions in his observations. He also argued from analogy to chemical solutions. You can add all different amounts of salt to water and still get salt water. The two chemists argued for the better part of a decade, and we shall see how everything shook out in the next episode, but let's continue for the moment. It turns out that both chemists were right, sort of. Proust was mostly right in that the vast majority of chemicals have a fixed composition. Water always has a certain proportion of hydrogen and a certain proportion of oxygen. But there is a small class of compounds in which the proportions of the component elements do vary somewhat, and they are now called bertholides. Most of these bertholides are solids lacking carbon. Often the crystal structure of these solids has defects and occasional missing atoms, causing the imprecise value of the proportions. But this structural aspect on the atomic scale was completely unknown in Berthollet's and Proust's era. Yet, for most purposes, Proust's idea of substances keeping definite proportions works, though this was still a controversy around the year 1800. There was one final concern among chemists that was unaddressed. That concern was the property of affinity. The French chemist Pierre-Joseph Maquet described it humorously as perhaps a property which is as essential in matter as extension and impenetrability and about which nothing more can be said than that it belongs to it essentially. While exactly what affinity was to Lavoisier and his contemporaries seems variable, almost like phlogiston, perhaps I would say that it is something like chemical attraction or what makes atoms attract each other, and why do some atoms attract certain atoms but repel or refuse to attract others. Chemists attempted to quantify this slippery quality in the same way as mass, velocity, and temperature could be measured. 
The German chemist Carl Friedrich Wenzel tried to measure affinity in the rates of dissolving chemicals in a particular solvent. Antoine Baume attempted to measure different affinities based on rates of reaction at room temperature and under heat. There were thousands of combinations of chemicals to measure, and there seemed no way to systematize affinity. Maquet of the humorist quote listed six types of affinity. 1. Affinity of aggregation, so some kind of cohesive affinity for particles to glom together. 2. Affinity of composition, which is affinity when two chemicals combine to react. An example of this is iron plus sulfuric acid gives vitriol. 3. Complicated affinity, when three chemicals react. 4. Affinity of intermedium. A bit complicated, but say we have sulfur which refuses to dissolve in water. Add some basic material like lye to the water, and the sulfur dissolves, giving sodium sulfide. So the alkali is an intermedium helping the sulfur to dissolve. 5. Reciprocal affinity or disposed affinity. Here we have an affinity getting something ready to react. An example is to dissolve silver in nitric acid. Then the silver in solution can react with hydrochloric acid. 6. Double affinity. This affinity makes two substances react with a compound, but neither of them can do it separately. This is a weird sort of affinity exemplified by Prussian blue, the first artificial pigment which we will discuss later. You can extract Prussian blue with caustic soda, which is saturated with Prussian blue. You can't extract Prussian blue in the soda using acid. You need also to add iron to the salt, and then you can precipitate out the pigment. A German chemist, Jeremias Benjamin Richter, who worked at the Royal Porcelain Factory in Berlin, began to work on this idea of affinities, particularly between acids and bases. Richter studied mathematics under the philosopher Immanuel Kant and wrote his doctoral dissertation on mathematics in chemistry. He found correspondences between various materials' weights in chemical reactions. So, for example, if we wanted to neutralize 1 kilogram of potassium hydroxide, you need 1.123 kilograms of nitric acid, or 873 grams of sulfuric acid, or 650 grams of hydrochloric acid. A proportional amount of alkali neutralize acid as well. So, you can use the reverse. A certain weight of base would neutralize 1.123 kilograms of nitric acid, 873 grams of sulfuric acid, or 650 grams of hydrochloric acid. You can think of this in terms of gram ratios. 1.29 grams of nitric acid was equivalent in neutralizing power to 1.00 grams of sulfuric acid and 0.745 grams of hydrochloric acid. Or, you might say that the weight of hydrochloric acid to sulfuric acid in neutralizing was 0.745 to 1, and the weight of nitric acid to sulfuric acid in neutralizing was 1.29 to 1. Richter created tables of these neutralizing ratios, and eventually called this study stoichiometry, the relationship of relative amounts of reactants, from ancient Greek stoicheion, element, plus metri, measuring. If you have taken introductory chemistry, you probably know about reaction stoichiometry and solved many homework problems on this topic. Another way of putting this is that there is an equivalent weight of a particular acid to a particular base. Another German chemist, Ernst Gottfried Fischer, 
rewrote these tables in terms of equivalency or combining weights. He set sulfuric acid as the standard against which all other acids and bases were measured. So, in Fischer's work, 793 grams of calcium hydroxide, a base, would neutralize 979 grams of phosphoric acid. Of course, why this worked was unknown, and why these particular ratios also was unknown, but at least there was a way to estimate beforehand how much of a particular reactant you needed. In our next episode, we shall meet John Dalton from Cumbria in northern England, and a Quaker, who unified chemistry with a new atomic theory. Until then, brave the elements. Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. (laughs) 